0: He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Light thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be greatly moved. In God I will praise his word, in God I have put my trust. I will not fear what man can do to me." seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly understanding the word of truth. Before we open the word of truth this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship with the Lord, that we are indeed prepared for study this evening under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, and that means to admit or acknowledge our sins in privacy through silent prayer to God the Father alone. It's a function of our priesthood then the result is if we admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wrongdoing. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, that it is your word that is a, a light unto our, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that illuminates our thinking and illuminates our lives and it is in your word that we find words of truth and words of life and it is through your word that you sanctify us, that it is by your word and by its application in our lives that we grow to spiritual maturity. So now, As we study under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we pray that we can see how these things apply, that our thinking can be sharpened and we can be driven to a greater appreciation of what you have provided for us in grace. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James. James chapter 2. We are down to verse 19. James chapter 2 verse 19 been a considerable considerable amount of time on the context. I don't want to spend a lot of time reviewing tonight. I do that every week. I think it's important for us to remember the context, but for a year I think I have belabored the point. And you ought to realize that James is writing to believers. He's not talking about how to become a Christian. He is talking about how to live the Christian life. He is warning against the dangers of disobedience because that leads to death, not spiritual death but to carnal or temporal death. That is, a self-destructive life based on the power of the sin nature rather than the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. And we experience that only as we grow and mature as believers. Now, in verse 14, James raised the question, What use is it, my brethren? If a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And again, I have spent much time demonstrating this context, that it begins back in 121 and goes through the end of the chapter in 226. The theme is application of doctrine. We see that in the scriptures, there's a process of learning doctrine. I use a diagram that I call the grace learning spiral. It's grace because God has provided it for every single believer, regardless of education, regardless of... of uh, IQ, regardless of economic factors. God provides Bible doctrine equally for every believer, and the means to learn doctrine is under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is the same for everyone. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what your background is, what uh, limitations you may think you have. I have seen people with limitations that can top yours who have, because they have been consistent at coming to Bible class, night after night, week after week, year after year, come to an incredible understanding of deep, deep Bible doctrine. It is because they are under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and it's not on the basis of our natural abilities. The pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. pastor-teacher is a man who has a spiritual gift, the ability to get into the Word of God, and to extract from it doctrine, and then to communicate it. He does this under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. When you are filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes it spiritually understandable. The Bible calls it pneumaticos doctrine. You exercise positive volition, and you understand it. It becomes gnosis, understandable. You have to think about it, meditate on it, contemplate on it, and then if you believe it, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, it is transferred from the outer sphere of the mentality of the soul, the noose, into the inter- inner sphere of the mentality of the soul, the cardia, where the Bible calls it epinosis doctrine. Gnosis doctrine is doctrine that is academically understood. And we all know people who may know a lot about the Bible, but there's not much application In fact, sometimes people in doctrinal churches where there's more teaching are accused of being this way, but that's false. You always, in every arena of life, whatever it might be, whatever your profession is, you have to learn a vast amount of information and you only apply a small portion of it. Think of all that you learned in school. I always think about mathematics because I hated mathematics. My dad was tutoring calculus. at at college level when he was 15 years old. I didn't get his genes. There's no mistake about that. I may look like him, but that's as far as it went. I got the outside, not the inside. Anyway, I remember learning all this arithmetic and mathematics and algebra and all these things all growing up through school and hated it. What relevance does this have to the life of a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old? But then finally when you get older and you start getting into things like computers, you start getting into bookkeeping, you start getting into accounting. Maybe you're not interested in that. Maybe at a later time in life you you do develop interest in that. At least sooner or later we all have to confront the Internal Revenue Service every spring and fill out that tax return. That's when these things start becoming applicable. But we have this vast reservoir of mathematical knowledge and numerical knowledge that is the fund from which we draw all sorts of information regarding numbers and mathematics later on in life. So in every sphere of life, you learn a vast amount of information which provides that pool from which we we may apply at any given time one or two percent, and depending on where we are in life, we're drawing from different portions of that. So we develop a storehouse of doctrine in our soul, and epinosis doctrine is applicable doctrine. It is doctrine that we can apply. It is not automatically applied. Somehow, some way along the line, people got the idea that if you're under the... Con- because we use the phrase, under the control of the Holy Spirit, that somehow the Holy Spirit overrides your volition so that it just happens automatically. The Holy Spirit will apply it for you. That's not what the Scripture says. That The Holy Spirit never overrides your volition, never overrides my volition... The Holy Spirit enables us to see how to use the doctrine, but we have to make, again, a volitional choice to apply it. That's what James is talking about here. When he says, hearing and doing, back in verse uh, 22, but become doers, the word poieo means appliers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves He's talking about the person who has either gnosis doctrine or maybe even epinosis doctrine, but isn't carrying it through to that final stage of application, putting it into action. And that is how the maturation process takes place. And we will get to that. Faith, and I mean, hearing and doing, faith and Works. Those are parallel concepts in James' thinking, so that if you are hearing the word, he is assuming that you are believing it. So hearing and faith are synonymous, and hearing produces application, and faith should produce works. So works and application are synonymous, and he is talking about the fact that this is what is necessary to move to spiritual maturity. In this context, he talks about salvation. But we have seen that the word saved does not mean being delivered from an eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, but is used with three different meanings in the New Testament. Category number one is phase one salvation, saved from the eternal penalty of sin. This means that at that point, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, when you realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and you think, I believe that, you don't necessarily have to tell God that, as long as you, it doesn't say pray a prayer of salvation, it says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you believe that, at that moment you are saved for all eternity. You can never lose your salvation because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, for every single sin in human history, past, present, and future, so that sin is no longer The issue. This means that at no time are somebody, at no time are you going to stand before God and God's going to read off a list of all your sins and have you explain why you did that. That's usually the uh, guilt modus operandi of a lot of evangelists in order to cow people into, uh, you know, operating, (coughs) coming to church, doing all the program things, whatever it may be. But the fact is that Christ paid the penalty, and when we put faith alone in Christ alone, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. This is the spiritual life when we advance to spiritual maturity. We still have a sin nature. That sin nature that you were born with, to which God imputed Adam's original sin, is just as evil, just as wicked, just as powerful as it was before if you give it the power. Before you were saved, that was the only option. You are freed positionally from the power of the sin nature at salvation because it is crucified with Christ. That means it is positionally dead. You are separated from its power. Now you have an option. That option is the Holy Spirit. You can either live your life under the influence of God the Holy Spirit by applying God's Word, or you can live your life under the power and control of the sin nature, one or the other. And as you apply doctrine under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, then you are saved or delivered from the power of sin in your life and you experience real qualitative life. You develop the capacity for life and and you experience the blessings that God has for you. In carnality, in sin, you experience temporal death, destruction, a self destructive pattern both spiritually and physically. And then phase three, the word saved is used of glorification when we are saved from the presence of sin, when we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and incidentally that happens exactly at the moment of physical death. The body deteriorates, goes into the ground or is cremated or whatever happens to it, but the soul and the human spirit of the believer is instantly separated from the physical body and is face-to-face with the Lord in heaven and for all eternity. doesn't receive the resurrection body until the rapture, but apparently there is some sort of intermediate body, an immaterial body in the meantime. So, phase three is saved from the presence of sin. James is talking about phase two, but so many people, as soon as they see the word saved and as soon as they see the word justified, they have sort of a knee-jerk reaction that this is talking about phase one rather than phase two. Now, the reason I brought justification in is because that becomes the issue at stake starting in verse 21. So, James raised the question, can that faith save him? And the answer is no, no. And what he means by faith is not just faith in the sense of believing. Remember I said there's three senses of faith. Sense number one is faith at salvation phase one, saving faith where the object is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there is faith in the sense of ongoing trust in the spiritual life, which is the dynamic of the faith rest drill. Trusting, but as we said... If it's not talking about phase one salvation, this option's out. If it's talking about application, and James is saying you have to apply what you're learning, and if trusting God is by definition application, then he's not talking about faith in that sense. He's talking about the third sense of faith, which is the objective sense, what is, believe, the object of your faith, that is, Bible doctrine. So that's what James is talking about here, the content of your faith. If a man says he has doctrine, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Can that doctrine save him? In other words, is that doctrine going to deliver him from carnal death? Is that doctrine going to have any value in his spiritual life? And the answer, of course, is no. The issue, apparently, is like a lot of people today... They think that if they just accumulate a lot of knowledge, a lot of facts, a lot of details about the Bible in their soul, that that's all it takes. You don't really have to change your life. You don't really have to apply anything. Just learn a lot. And so they get on a a learning trip and they accumulate a lot of academic truth. And James says that's not good. That is not going to get you to the point of spiritual maturity. He gives an illustration in verses 15 and 16. Of application, and then verse 17, he again states, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. John, could you turn the fan on? It's a little still up here. Thank you. Being by itself, it is dead. Now, for something to be dead, it has to first be alive. Now, I have never, I grew grew up in Texas. We have all kinds of roadkill in Texas. I've never seen the kind of roadkill you have up here. But every time we drive out on the road here, it got to be a joke with us last year that every time we drive anywhere, you'd smell a dead skunk. I've never in my life seen or smelled so many dead skunks as I have since I have been in Connecticut. But you know what? When you smell that dead skunk, that tells you that that skunk was previously alive. Now, to have a dead faith, that means that once you had to have a living faith. Dead faith is not a non-existent faith, which is what some people will try to make this passage say, but it is a faith that is no longer operational. It is a faith that no longer applies. It is a faith that is a person who is a believer, but they're no longer applying it. Now, then we got into verse 18 and 19, and these two verses present the opposing position. And we went through the detail showing why this is an objector and it fits... Number of of cases that are outlined both in scripture and in Greek literature fits the form of a diatribe, which is a sophisticated form of argumentation used in debate, and you find it even today. Someone will be arguing for a position, and they'll say, "But the opponent says such and such," and then they respond to the opponent's argument. That's the same thing that James is doing in this context. He's he's putting into the text the words of an opponent. Now the quote begins with, you have faith and I have works. Now if you have a New American Standard Bible, you will see that the editors close the quote at the end of verse 18. If you have an NIV, they close the quote, I believe, after the phrase, you have faith and I have works, close quote. But if you are familiar with this uh, stylistic device, You know that when James comes back to his argument, it's when he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? And that's pretty standard in Greek literature and has been demonstrated. So that verse 18 and verse 19 are the words of the opponent. And the words of the opponent are basically, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith by your works and I will show you my faith. I will show you by my works my faith. And we went into extensive detail last time of why that should be translated by instead of um, without because of a textual problem. We won't go into that again tonight. And we also saw that this is sarcasm. Sarcasm in the sense of irony. Now, what exactly is irony? Irony is a more scholarly term for sarcasm. But in irony, a person is saying one thing but he means to say the exact opposite. That's what's going on. He may use one set of words, but he is really implying just the opposite. So this opponent says, okay, you have faith. That's what you claim. I have works. Show me your faith by your works, and I'll show you by my works my faith. In other words, it can't be done. The show me terminology, it came to me about Thursday night. Something like at 3 o'clock in the morning, I wake up and think about this stuff all the time. And it hit me that this is the same thing you might find in a debate between a creationist and an evolutionist. And the creationist turns to the evolutionist and says, Okay, show me a transitional form from the fossil record. Go ahead, show me. Show me. If you claim that there's all these transitions, go ahead, show me. Show me. Just pull one out. Just give me one transitional form. He knows it can't be done. That's the way this objector is treating this. He is assuming that there is no inherent connection, in fact, no connection at all between application and doctrine. All you have to do is accumulate a lot of doctrine in your soul and you'll be okay. And James is making just the opposite point, that there is a connection. In other words, what this guy is saying is, look, application doesn't vindicate or validate doctrine. It has no relationship. And I'm using those words very carefully. He is saying that application does not vindicate or validate what you claim you believe. There's no inherent relationship. Now, what do I mean by vindicate? Well, we'll get down to that when we go through our term justification. Justification. But basically, or excuse me, basically uh, vindicate means to show something or to justify. It's a synonym for justification. And I want to use that because, uh, uh, John, if you'll turn that down just a little bit, the pages of my Bible won't blow and I'll be a little less distracted. Thank you. Okay, I think that'll do it. Okay. Validation or vindication is a synonym for justification. Now the thing is that as soon as we're, we're so imbued with Pauline theology of justification that as soon as we see that we automatically think of phase one justification. Now, phase one justification means that you are a believer and you have minus R. You lack righteousness. That's minus R. You lack righteousness And so you cannot ever meet the righteous standard of God. God is absolute righteousness. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So what the righteousness of God uh, rejects, the justice of God judges. But what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Everyone was poured out upon him. And when you put your faith alone in Christ alone... His perfect righteousness is credited or imputed to your account so that now you have plus R. Experientially, you're still a sinner, you still have a sin nature, and you still continue to commit sins. But positionally, you have His perfect righteousness, and God the Father looks down on that perfect righteousness and declares you to be just. Now, the word righteousness, justice, justification all come from the same basic word group in Greek and the verb is dikaiō looks like this in the Greek d i k a i o and it means to justify to declare righteous to validate or to vindicate We have to look at the context, and of course, one thing that's important in studying James is James wrote this epistle maybe as early as 40 A.D. The Apostle Paul isn't writing or explicating justification by faith alone for another 12 to 15 years. So James is, James uses a lot of words in a non technical sense that Paul uses later on in a very technical sense. So we need to make sure we're not reading back into the context a Non, a, a technical sense that's not there. Now, in verse 20, James comes back into the picture and he addresses this opponent. And he says, are you willing to recognize, and finally, are you willing to put up with this and admit, you foolish fellow, your position, in other words, your position that doctrine is all that matters and applications are irrelevant. That's a foolish position. He says, are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? The word arge, which is translated useless, means idle. It means not producing. It means not accomplishing something. In Matthew 20, verse 3, it refers to idle workers. So what this means is a faith, not a faith that is not present, but a faith that is not producing. Once again, we have more evidence that what James is talking about is the importance of application. To paraphrase this verse, he's saying, what a foolish, nonsensical argument. Doctrine, apart from application, accomplishes nothing for the spiritual life, and now I will give evidence. Your claim, opponent, is that works can't validate faith. I'm going to give you two examples of how works validated faith, how works validated doctrine. Example number one is going to come from Abraham. Verse 21, he asked the question, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now at this point we sort of scratch our heads and wonder if there's not a major contradiction going on in James. This is part of the reason that Martin Luther thought that this epistle should not be contained in the canon of the New Testament and called it a A right-strawy epistle. In other words, it doesn't have a whole lot of weight behind it. In fact, it might be confusing. And it is, if you want to think justification always means phase one, salvation. So let's skip ahead to verse 24. If we're going to properly understand this, we have to understand a few new things about justification. Look at verse 24. His conclusion will be, You see... That a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that's not a very good English translation. You see, the English seems to suggest that a man is justified not by faith alone, but also by works. In other words, the English seems to suggest that justification is by works uh, or by is by faith plus works. One kind of justification that includes both faith and works. That's what the English implies. Unfortunately, it's a bad translation. The word in the Greek for alone is the word monos. Now, you know this in the English, especially if you're a uh, stereo buff, because you were glad they came up with stereo to replace mono. Mono meaning one or single or alone. Now... Monas is an adverb. Now we have to go back to basic third or fourth grade. I don't I guess it's still the same. Basic third or fourth grade grammar. An adverb modifies a verb. An adverb does not modify a noun. So when you translate it You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Alone is modifying what word in that sentence? Faith. Faith is a noun. Faith is not a verb. That's a bad translation. You don't use an adverb to modify a noun. That's what the translators did. And unfortunately, you wonder how some of these guys ever got into a position of being translators. The adverb has to modify the verb. So... That brings us to, to the third point here. First point, alone is the Greek word monos. Second point is an adverb modifies a verb, not a noun. If it were an adjective, it would take the form mones. M-O-N long E-S. So you can clearly see the distinction. That's why every word down to a jot and tittle of scripture is inspired by God. So this should be translated... Now, they, see, he's, he's left out the verb in the second clause. Literally, what it re, should read is, you see that a man is justified by works and not justified. Supply that. He's going fast. He just leaves it out, but that's what he means. That's the main verb of the second clause, and not justified by faith. So, the So, to translate it correctly, it should read, you see that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. Now that's a big difference. Let me read it again. You see, a man is just, you see that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. What does that imply? That implies two different kinds of justification. Now all of a sudden I see the wheels turning a little bit. I saw smoke last week when we went through that textual problem on the on the opponent, and we're going to see some smoke here. Two different kinds of justification. That's exactly right. Two different kinds of justification. That's what this implies. Well, the Apostle Paul seems to suggest the same thing in Romans chapter 4. This is the fourth point. This implies two categories of justification, and Paul agrees with this. Romans 4, 1 through 3, we read, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Let me read that again, that's Romans 4, 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, James is saying that if he was justified by works, that's a valid justification, but it doesn't cut any ice with God. It may have validity in relationship to men, but not in relationship to God. So, we have one kind of justification that is related to God, and another kind, and just for clarification, we'll use the word vindication here to indicate justification toward man justification before God is based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go on in Romans 4.3. For what does Scripture say? And then he quotes an Old Testament passage, Genesis 5.6. He says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, that is, it was imputed to him, as righteousness. So Genesis 5.6 talks about the fact that at some point in Abraham's life, When he was still Abram, he came to a realization that he was a sinner and that God had made a promise that he would send a Messiah that would solve the sin problem. I don't think the Old Testament had, at least at that stage, much more of a clearer understanding than just the promise that Messiah would come to solve the sin problem. The exact mechanics came later. You can't find any passage in the Old Testament to clearly articulate substitutionary spiritual death Till you get to Isaiah, and that's almost 700 years, 800 years after, no, it's more than that, it's about 1400 years after Abraham. But Abraham believes God, and he looks forward to that, and he believes God at this point, and God imputes to him perfect righteousness. Now, let's look at this passage, because this is important. We're going to go back and forth between Genesis and Romans and James. So, if you have something to mark your place in your Bible, you might want to do that, so we can get there quickly. Genesis fifteen six. Now in Genesis twelve one, God called Abram and told him to leave Ur the Chaldees. He was a member of the third he lived during the period of the third dynasty of Ur. He was a member of the aristocracy. And God called him out and told him to leave. And then as God took him eventually into the promised land where he lived as a sojourner and lived in tents. He had uh, uh, separated from Lot. He had a battle with the five kings. Various other things had taken place. He had defeated the five kings. He had brought uh, <clears throat> financial gifts to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, in, verse, in uh, chapter 14. All of this indicates that he is already a believer. And then in verse 15, in the first five verses, God reiterates his covenant with Abram that he will provide a son. It would not be Eliezer, an adopted son. It would be from his own loins. And then in verse 6 we read, Then he believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, if you read that in the English, it sounds that it is at this point in time that Abraham, or Abram at this point still, he hasn't received his new name, it is at this point that Abram receives imputed righteousness. But wait a minute. Hasn't he been a believer for a number of years? Obviously. Well, how do you solve the problem? Well, you have to look at the Hebrew grammar. The Hebrew grammar starts the sentence off with a vav, which is a Hebrew uh, Hebrew con- conjunction of contrast, especially if it's linked with a here with a perfect verb. And he says, now... Well, it's more of a continuation, it's a now. And then the main verb is a perfect. Now, in Hebrew, you only have two tenses. You have a perfect tense and an imperfect tense. And they perform all the works of all the other tenses. Now, the perfect tense can be simple past. Or it can have the sense of an English perfect. That is, action in the past with results that go on. And continue, the imperfect is usually used to describe present time action and future time action. And what we have here is the perfect of amen, the word from which we get our word amen, which means to believe. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Aramaic, amen, amen, in John 6 and other passages, verily, verily, truly, truly. It is amen and it means to believe, to trust. To rely upon. Now, because it is in the perfect tense and not the imperfect, it's either simple past or perfective. I think it's perfective, and it refers to an event at some undesignated time in the past when Abraham had believed God. Verse 6 is almost parenthetical, it's a reminder. Now, Abraham had believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it to him. As righteousness, It's inserted in the midst of this to remind us that God is blessing Abraham with all of this because Abraham already possesses perfect righteousness and is a believer. It is not based on works. It is based on grace to a child of God, to a believer. Now, all of that comes under point four, the two categories of justification in taking us back To Genesis uh, 15-6. Let's review this a little bit. Point four was this implies two categories of justification, one before God and one before man. Point number five, uh, a review of the doctrine of justification that at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to the believer the righteousness of Christ. This same dynamic took place in the Old Testament when they believed in the promise of a saving Messiah. God instantly imputed righteousness to them. Point number six. Justify comes from the verb decaiao, which means to declare righteous, to validate, to vindicate, and to justify. So we have to look at these passages very carefully to see what we are talking about. And in Romans 4.3, it refers to Genesis 15.6, which is judicial or forensic justification this is phase 1 salvation okay point number 7 discusses genesis 156 use of the hifiel perfect of amain that abraham abram believed god he'd already believed god and it was imputed to him his righteousness and that happened in genesis are the events of Genesis 15 took place when Genesis is? I mean, when Abraham. Genesis 15:6 is a reminder during events that occurred when Abraham was about 80 to 84 years of age. Ishmael hasn't been born yet. Ishmael is born in chapter 16 when Abram is uh, 86. So he's in his early 80s, just a young buck. Now. <clears throat> Isaac isn't born until he's 99. Let's do a little chronology here. That's 19 years later. Isaac's sacrifice on Mount Moriah doesn't occur until Isaac is somewhere in his 20s, maybe even early 30s. He doesn't marry till he's 40, and that's the next event we know of, so it's sometime... In late adolescence to early adulthood, let's just use, um, let's just say Abram was 120. So, 40 years goes by between Genesis 15, the statement of Genesis 15, 6, which refers back, and the events of the sacrifice and the offering of Isaac. Okay, now I'm getting ahead of us. We haven't gotten there yet, so let's turn back to James 2. 21. The question, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And what we have seen is that Abraham was declared righteous, phase 1 justification, back here at some point, let's just say when he was 50 years of age. We don't know, we'll just use that as a round figure. It's before Genesis 12.1. Genesis 22, which is the story of the events on Mount Moriah, take place some 60 years later. What's going on here? What is James talking about? Well, let's look at Genesis 22 just to pick up the context. We have to do a little isagogics. Isagogics means that as part of interpretation, and it means that the Bible must be interpreted within the time in which it was wit- written, and it's necessary to do historical and biblical background studies in order to make sure that we don't take something out of context. So we've seen already that the Bible claims that Abraham is enters into phase one salvation somewhere around the age of fifty, maybe earlier, maybe later but it's at least 60 or 70 years before the events of Genesis 22.9. So right now we're sure that the illustration has nothing to do with phase one. Genesis 22, beginning in verse one. Now it came about after, after these things. Now that's just a standard way of dealing with the text and saying the time has gone on, but a number of things have happened. Already, Abraham has been tested in a variety of ways. He has been tested by waiting on the birth of Isaac. He's been tested with his wife. He's been tested by leaving his homeland. He's been tested by the onslaught of the five kings. There have been a number of different tests in Abraham's life. And we read in 22.1, Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Now, what is the theme of James? Those of you who've been hanging in here for a year, what is the theme of James? How to have joy, inner happiness in the midst of trials and tests. You see, James is getting ready to end this little section on faith and application. And so he wants to take us back to the main idea, which is, You're going to have the doctrine in your soul tested. There is going to be evaluation. Now, when does this take place? This takes place in two senses for the believer, and we have our flow chart right here. That at the moment of salvation, we enter into the plan, and we're going to go through tests of adversity and tests of prosperity to see if we can apply doctrine. That means we have to utilize our volition and choose positively or negatively to apply doctrine or to reject doctrine. If we apply it under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then this is the cycle we follow as we advance towards spiritual maturity. The first stage is we produce divine good. We begin to experience real life, the abundant life. And our life produces evidence that God's will is good and perfect according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That leads to steadfast endurance. We develop persistence. The more we apply, the easier it is to apply. We begin to grow. And we advance to the adult spiritual life. And then when we die and we're absent from the body, we go to the Bema Seat of Christ. It's usually called the Judgment Seat of Christ, but that is a, in a sense, a poor term because it's not the term katakrima, which is the word for negative judgment. It's the word Bema Seat, which implies evaluation, But the other word that's used in 1 Corinthians 3 and in James 1 is dachimion. Dachimion. And dachimion refers to a positive evaluation. In other words, the focus is not on what you've done wrong, but what is there of value in your life? What did you do right that I can reward you for? Remember the imagery of 1 Corinthians 3. God is going to pile up all the production of your life. And he's going to set a match to it, like a furnace used used to smelt metal, where you burn off all of the impurities. And so all that production that's human good and dead works is going to be burned off. It's wood, hay, and straw, and has no value for eternity. What's left is what has value for eternity. It's divine good. It's that which was produced under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so that becomes that's the basis for rewards and inheritance. So the judgment seat of Christ, the issue, is not your sin. That's never an issue again for the believer because that was satisfied at the cross. Christ paid the penalty at the cross. God does not believe in double jeopardy. It's not going to come up again. You don't ever have to worry about the fact that at some point in the future, God's going to start asking you a lot of embarrassing questions because those sins are over and done with. The issue is not your failure The issue is what's going to survive that fiery examination at the bema seat of Christ. Now, if nothing survives, you will be embarrassed. There will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. And there are a number of believers who spend maximum amount of time down here in this bottom part of the flow chart, operating on the power of the sin nature, producing sin, human good, and temporal death, which produces weakness and instability, spiritual regression, and a hardened heart. And we saw those dynamics earlier in our study of James 1. When they come to the judgment seat of Christ, they will experience a loss of rewards and temporary shame, and they will enter into the kingdom, but they will not be heirs and possessors of the kingdom. They will be living there, but they will not be reigning there, and that is comparable to the situation of the Jews during the period of the Judges, when they lived in the land but they no longer possessed the land and it wasn't until later on that they finally were obedient enough to God to control the land under David so Genesis 22 it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and we all go through a variety of tests and these tests are designed to test the doctrine in our soul now As I have said on many occasions and alluded to already this evening, faith has three senses. I'm going to come up with this third one for us tonight. The first sense is the active sense, which is trusting God. This is what we... As the faith rest drill, where we are mixing faith with the promises of God. When God says that we should pray without ceasing, then we apply that and we trust Him and we pray without ceasing. When God says that that hitherto have ye asked nothing in My name, ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. We trust God that Christ will answer our that God will answer our prayers because we're praying through Christ, and so. We rely on that promise. When the promise says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Then we are not afraid. And we claim that promise and it stabilizes our emotions and we begin to think objectively under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That's the faith rest drill. The passage sense is doctrine or what is believed, the object of our faith. We use it that way all the time when we talk about so-and-so's faith. What is your faith? Are you Episcopal, Catholic, Methodist, Hindu? What's your faith? What's your doctrine? I'm going to call the third sense the plenary sense. Plenary means full. This includes both of these, that both are present. That the writer is not only talking about the fact that you need to be trusting God, but he's also talking about what you're trusting. Both senses are present. It's not just trusting, it's trusting doctrine. The test is, are you going to trust God, and do you have enough doctrine to trust God? Both senses are there. So, Abraham is going to be tested, and some doctrine in his soul is going to be tested. Doctrine relevant, or doctrine that is related to the promised son, Isaac. Now, hold your place here, just to give us a little new insight... Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 to get the New Testament elucidation of this. By faith, by means of faith, by means of the faith rest drill focused on doctrine, the plenary sense of the word. I think both are there and it's got to be just because of some things in this context. By means of doctrine, Abraham... When he was tested, there's our word again. God just keeps testing everybody. When, By means of faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is his final test to move him into spiritual maturity to see if he's really understood everything that God has taken him through and told him over the years. When he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now there we learn something significant about Isaac. There's a number of comparisons between Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ, one of which is he is the only son, he's the son of promise. In verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, this is the doctrine that is in Abraham's soul. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You see, when Abraham heard this command by God in Genesis 22, Abraham's thinking, God promised me that he's going to give me a seed that is going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. I can count on that. The only child of my loins is Isaac. God has said, this is the promised son. I don't care what happens on the mountain, this boy is going to live and have children because God has said so. So, it doesn't matter that God says, I'm going to go kill him. I'm trusting God. I'm relying on the doctrine in my soul. This is a hard test. Those of you who are parents can imagine what this is like to take your only precious child up on the mountain and to take out that sacrificial knife with that long blade and prepare to slit their throat. But Abraham's focus was on God. God and His Word was more real to Abraham Than the experience of having a son. God's faith in God, I mean, Abraham's faith in God's promise was more real to him than his emotional feelings for Isaac. Because doctrine dominated Abraham's soul, Abraham could think clearly, rationally, and objectively about the situation. And instead of reacting and saying, God, how can you ask me to do this? He said, okay, Lord, when and where? Because he understood the God who made the commandment. He had a vast amount of doctrine in his soul. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take now your son... "...your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah." Incidentally, the Mount, mount Moriah is the temple mount in Jerusalem. This was, of course, long before there was any, any temple mount in Jerusalem. "...and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you." So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son... And he split wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now look at what he, excuse me, look at what he takes with him. He's got his donkey, and he takes along two servants, and Isaac, and he cuts enough wood to supply for the burnt offering. What's missing? The sacrifice, the lamb, the sheep, the goat, whatever it might be, there's no sacrificial animal. On the third day, they walked for three days. Now, you can imagine, maybe Isaac questioned him. Maybe he just said, well, maybe we'll get something when we get there. Maybe he'll buy a lamb along the way. But they take three days to get there. And Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder. Now, that means he's probably from East Texas because he says yonder. But don't be confused by the word lad. The word lad is used to describe a couple of other people in the Old Testament who were around 40 or 50 years of age. So that should be a vote of confidence for some of us. I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. Notice his confidence. We will worship and we, first person, common plural, we will worship return to you. So Abraham is so confident of what will take place that he knows he is to sacrifice Isaac, but he knows that they will both return. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took in his knife the fire, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. Abraham said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, maybe Isaac's a little slow, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt that it's taken him three days to figure out they're missing missing the lamb, and it's just at the last minute that he starts raising questions. And notice Abraham's confidence. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son. Now, this must have been an interesting conversation. Now, there's a lot of times I've heard preachers speculate on what this was, but I think it went like this. Well, son, this is what's going to happen. You're getting ready to die, and God's going to bring you back to life. You can count on it. You're the promised son. We know that's the promise, and this is what's going to happen. I don't know what was going on in Isaac's mind, but Abraham was pretty confident. But Isaac also is expressing some faith because he allowed himself to be tied and bound and placed upon the altar. This shows that Isaac, too, had some doctrine in his soul. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, Verse 11, but the angel of Yahweh, this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham responded, here I am. said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. This is doctrinal orientation, respect for God, putting God first. It's part of personal love for God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, him behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Now, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham went up and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son, that God provided a solution, a sacrifice in our place. It's a picture, a wonderful picture of substitutionary atonement. Now, let's go back to our passage in James 2.21. Now James as we ha- I mean Abraham as we have already seen was justified in the Pauline sense phase one salvation at some time in the indeterminate past before Genesis 12. So when we read the question was not Abraham our father justified by works this is not talking about justification before God but validation or vindication before man. He is validating the doctrine that is in his soul. He is validating all that he has learned, all that God has taught him. He is in a test situation. This is what happens in our lives. When we hit that test, we validate the doctrine that God has given us when we apply it in the situation, whatever it might be. Romans chapter 12 Verse 1 and 2 states it pretty clearly. Paul says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the whole process we've been talking about. From learning through the teaching of the word, gnosis, epinosis, then application, the renovation of your thinking literally, That you may demonstrate. Demonstrate. That's a synonym for validate. Incidentally, if you look it up in your thesaurus, validate has a synonym called prove. Prove has a synonym called justify. See how it all ties together. You may prove, you may validate, you may justify the will of God. That's what validation means. That's what prove means. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what we are doing when we obey, carry that application process out, is we are validating in our lives that God's will is good and perfect and right. Verse 22, you see, now he drives the point home. You see that faith, that is, his faith rest drill and his doctrine, was working with his works. And as a result of the works, that is the application, the faith, that is the doctrine, was... And here we have the aorist passive indicative of teleio. And this means T-E-L-E-I-O-O. This means to bring to completion... To mature or to perfect, not in the sense of sinlessness, but to bring to completion, to bring to its intended conclusion, to bring to maturity. And so we see the end of the process is not just to accumulate doctrine in the soul, not just to accumulate applicable doctrine or epinosis doctrine in the soul, but to actually take that doctrine and put it into practice in the tests of life. And when you do that, then doctrine is brought to completion. It is brought to its intended conclusion, which is application. We'll finish with Abraham and look at the second example of Rahab the streetwalker next Wednesday night. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. For the fact that we see that, that you have saved us by your grace and that in our lives as we learn doctrine and let it fill our souls and then apply it, we validate or vindicate your word before man so that they can see that it is true and perfect and that your will is right. And in that we display a testimony, a testimony to man and a testimony to the angels that will have eternal validity. Father, as we go now, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to remember these things and challenge us by them. In Jesus' name, Amen.